Thank you for taking the time to listen to the sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this, you are challenged by the Word of God, you are built up in love, and that you are drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to remind you, this is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be present in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you do live in the North Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to join us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings. Our desire is that God would use this to encourage you with the hope we have in Jesus. There's some things in our life that come easy to us. And there's some things that are hard for us. You know, some people can't dance. I don't have a category for that. But some people can't do that. I was talking to a brother a couple weeks ago who told me that he can't clap and sing at the same time. Again, I just looked at him and I just, I didn't know what to say. I thought we should pray in that moment, but I just kind of let it go. For some people, it's hard to read. That doesn't come easy. Forgiveness can be difficult. And a couple other things that can be difficult for us is being content and being generous. Being content and being generous, those things aren't easy for us. But here's the thing, and this is something I say all the time in our church, these things are possible for us, though. Even though they're hard to do, we can do them. And you're like, why, Marv? Because Philippians 2, verse 13 says, God is working in us for his good pleasure. See, because God is working in us, we can do things that seem impossible for us. Because he is working in our hearts, certain things become possible. I want you to turn to somebody and say, he's working in me. Come on, say it a little bit louder. He's working in me. Look at verse 10. I'm going to try to get you guys involved today. So verse 10 says, I, rejo- I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now again, we've been going through this letter and all, all through it, Paul's been saying to them, rejoice, rejoice. He's been commanding this. Now he says, I rejoice. He commands them to rejoice, but he says, now I am rejoicing. And why? Because they've revived their concern for him. See, he felt nice when he received their gift because it reminded him that somebody cared about him. Again, remember where Paul is. He's in jail, chained probably to a soldier. And this gift that shows up from Epaphroditus tells him that somebody cares deeply about him. Now, some of the people in our city who are hurting the most, do you know what they're, at? they're wondering? Does anybody care? That's one of the questions people in this city, the, the needy, the poor, they're wondering, does anyone care? And God has placed our church in this city, in this location to show them that yes, someone does. And through our acts of love and kindness and sharing the gospel, we can show them that God cares for you. And so Paul is grateful for their gift, but he doesn't want them thinking he's asking for more. Verse 11 says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens 
me. Contentment is possible through the strength of God. Contentment is possible through the strength of God. He says, I've learned to be content. And contentment is not easy. And it's even harder when we consider the culture that we live in. Something new is being offered to us all the time. Every ad on TV is telling you that what you have in your life is not enough. There's constantly something being put forward. First, we're told our, our phone screens needed to be bigger. Now we're told our phones need to fold. And you're like, well, I was listening to the radio this week. I'm thinking, maybe I need a screen that folds. But like, I don't. We're constantly being told we need more and that we have, what we have is not enough. Contentment's hard because of the culture that we live in, but contentment's also hard because of our flesh. Your flesh is like the cookie monster. Do you remember that guy, Sesame Street? Cookie, cookie, cookie. Nom, 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 cookie, cookie, cookie. Right, the blue guy? Your flesh is always telling you you don't have enough. It's never satisfied. See, a lack of, when you see in your life a lack of contentment, you have to be on high alert. You have to be on high alert because a lack of contentment is dangerous. See, it's a lack of contentment that causes some people to overwork. Just going and going more, more. It's a lack of contentment that makes some people enter into relationships, dating relationships, they have no business being in. And they're looking at the person, they're saying, this isn't really enough, but you know, I lack contentment so much that I'm just going to settle. It's a lack of contentment that has some people in deep debt. Because they look and they say, like, what I have is not enough, but the thing I want I actually can't afford, so I'm going to go take on all kinds of debt and put myself in all sorts of trouble. It's a lack of contentment that has some people full of jealousy and envy as they look at other people's lives and they think, when's when's that thing coming to me? It's a lack of contentment that has some people deeply discouraged. It's a lack of contentment that has some of us angry with God at this moment. It's a lack of contentment that has some of us frustrated with God because we think he is not giving us the thing that we deserve. Beware of discontentment. Here's why. Because in those moments, unwise decisions are just around the bend. If you're unaware, you will make decisions that are unwise that will lead to serious consequences for years. Contentment is hard, but it can be learned. D.A. Carson says this, the secret of contentment is not normally learned in posh circumstances or in deprived circumstances, but in exposure to both. Paul carefully insists that his own contentment operates under both conditions. He avoids the arrogance that is often associated with wealth. He also avoids the kind of spiritual arrogance that is often associated with poverty. The brute fact is that Paul is content in both circumstances. Here's this piece. Because his contentment is utterly independent of circumstances. Do you see that? His contentment is utterly independent of what is going on in his life. His contentment is found, is focused on all that he enjoys of Christ Jesus. That is where his contentment lies. He went through all kinds of situations. And do you know what Paul learned? He learned in all of them that Jesus was enough. And that is the beauty 
and simplicity of Christian contentment. See, because he had Jesus, he knew that he was lacking nothing. And all God's people said? He had Jesus, and so he was lacking nothing. Jesus was enough for him. And here's how it comes home for us. In our moments of discontentment, those times where we're like, I'm not content with what God has given me, with what's going on in my life, you have to ask yourself the hard question, is Jesus enough for you? Because what's going on in that moment is that you are looking for satisfaction in something other than Jesus Christ. And you are in a place of danger. And to the non-Christian, with all due respect, our culture is constantly going to put something in front of you and they're going to say, if you have this, you're going to be satisfied. And if you, just, if you have this, it's going to be, bring you contentment. I can tell you it will not. The only person that satisfies us, lasting, true satisfaction, is Jesus Christ. Because when we place our faith in him, when we believe the gospel, that he died in our place, that God saved us, sorry, that God made us, and that we rebelled against him, but sent Jesus Christ to live the perfect life we could not live, and then die in our place, and then rise from the grave, proving that sin was prayed for. When you place your faith in that reality, Joy and contentment comes into your life. You know why? Because you know you've received someone who's going to be deeply committed to you and love you. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And we can rest in that reality. Amen. Like the earth goes through all kinds of seasons. Paul went through different seasons in his life and he was content through it all. He says, I learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. He says, there's a secret. And he actually tells us the secret. It's in the text. Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, we all know this verse, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here's what Paul's not saying. He is not saying he can do anything he puts his mind to. This, that's how some people apply this verse. They think, when I read Philippians 4.13, it's a guarantee for success, but it's not. If Pastor Yogi, right here, woke up tomorrow and challenged this guy to a race... <laughs> Yeah. You are wrong. It doesn't matter where he tattoos that verse on his body. It doesn't matter if Mina is at the end of the, like, the line going, you can do it, Yogi, with a sign. That brother, I love you. You are going to lose that race. It's not a guarantee for success. The all things... Paul is talking about is the different circumstances that he faced in his life. And he says, God carried me through all of them. Again, now think about Paul's life. He saw the up of, of seeing people come to Christ and believe the gospel. He, he experienced the joy of that. He also experienced persecution of being beaten and stoned 
Right now, as he wrote this letter, he is sitting in jail. When you read 2 Timothy, all of his friends deserted him. At the end of his life, he says, Timothy, no one is here with me. This brother who used to serve with me is now in love with the world and gone. Completely deserted. He was shipwrecked. Do you know at one point this guy gets bitten by a snake and just shakes it off? I'm thinking like, I'd like to do that. I hate snakes. Shipwrecked, in prison, and he says, I endured it all. Why? Not because of his own strength. Because of God who strengthens me. The Greek word here that we translate content was actually used by Stoic philosophers in Paul's time, but it was used to express self-sufficiency. And so the way Paul is using the word, he actually turns it inside out. He flips it on his, its head. He says, the capacity to handle the ups and downs of life do not come from inside of me. They come from outside. It comes from the strength that God supplies. Your life will have ups and downs. Some of us right now are in the down moment. And you're wondering, how do I get through the down moment? You get through the down moment not by trusting in yourself. You get through the down moment by throwing all of your needs, your wants, all of them on God. And you say, God, you are the one who has to carry me through this. And you don't trust in yourself, you trust in the Lord, as we pray to him, as we read the word, as we participate in community. And you know what happens when you do those things? It reminds you who Jesus Christ is. It reminds you of the love of Jesus Christ. It reminds you that Jesus has you in your hand, in his hand. And you realize he is enough for me. And it's because you remember the amount that we have in Christ. We've heard this This is what happens when you go verse by verse through a book. You hear things again and again. And in Christ, we have full justification. We are made right with God. In Christ, we are being sanctified. We're being changed. And in Christ, I have a future that is full of hope and joy. And so he is enough for me. And I can be content. This helps us. This is where you have to go helps us to be content. He's content, but he appreciated the kindness they showed him. Look at verse 14. It says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. See, Paul had people around him who were stirring up trouble, making life hard for him. But the Philippians shared in his trouble, and they shared in his trouble by giving to his ministry. Verse 15 and you, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my need once and again. Their giving teaches us that generosity is possible through trusting the supply of God through trusting the supply of God. See, contentment is hard, but so is generosity. Notice that Paul says, when I left Macedonia, the only church that partnered with me was the Philippians. Not everybody jumped in. 
He says, you are the only ones who did it with me. Now that word partnership is important. We cannot miss it. It's a powerful word because it reminds us that spreading the gospel can't be done by one person. That it takes a group effort. That partnership is vital to to it happening. And when we give financially to this church and when we serve together, what we have to be thinking is we are partnering together. That we're coming together like a strong team to help advance the gospel, to spread the message of Jesus Christ, the most important work in the world. The Philippians show us that we need to partner together, but they also show us the importance of supporting missionaries. There's that side of it too. Yes, it's good to give to our church, but we also should give to those who are taking risks to go to places where the gospel has not been heard. Some of them just taking risks in our own city where their reputation is on the line. Just to tell people about the message of Jesus Christ. And we should generously give to their work and effort. Their generosity revealed a lot about them. It revealed their commitment. Notice that Paul says that they didn't just do it once. He said that in verse 16 that they they did it once and again. It wasn't this one-time gift. It was this ongoing generosity. It also revealed their willingness to sacrifice for the gospel. Look at verse 17. It says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering. Paul says that their gift was a sacrifice, that it was a fragrant offering, that it was pleasing to the Lord. We got to remember this. Sacrificial giving is pleasing to the Lord. And you know why it's pleasing? Because it tells God that we are committed to advancing the gospel, that we're committed to building his kingdom, that we're committed to his work, building his kingdom more than building our own. And that's what it reveals to him. The Philippians, they show us the generous spirit we can all adopt. Now, I want to say this because it's important to say this. This generous spirit is already something we see in our church. Sometimes when the pastor gets up and the money message is happening, you start to feel like they're just trying to get you to sort of load in. The, way, the reason why our church can even gather in this space, some of the things you see on this stage is because there's already a generous spirit within our church. And that is how we are to stay in order to advance and continue to spread the message of Jesus Christ. Their gift revealed their willingness to sacrifice for the gospel. Their gift also revealed their spiritual maturity. And this is what Paul wanted more than anything else. He wanted to see them grow more than anything else. You're like, where do you get that? Verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul's like, I don't don't just want money from you. Giving helps you grow spiritually. And he's like, that is what I'm after. Your spiritual growth is more important to me than anything else. And their giving, this gift, was a clear sign they were growing. Frank Thielman says, their generosity was a concrete demonstration that God was completing the work 
that he had started in them when they believed the gospel. A clear sign that there's a belief in the gospel. This is why we will never pressure people to give in our church. Because I've said this in the first message in this series. If the gospel has touched your heart, if you believe in the, in the greatest work in the world, you'll give. And that's why our offering time, we don't stand up here and read to you and talk to you about robbing God and all those kinds of things. None of that. Because we just think, if the gospel has touched your heart, you will do what God is prompting you to do. And we just leave that between you and the Lord. And it's a clear sign if you're doing it of your growth in Christ. But here's something that is very important that I want to say and that we cannot miss in this. All giving, say all. All giving has to come from the heart. Every act of giving, you got, Lori's just smiling at me over there has to come from the heart. And this is a principle that you can see in the Old Testament and the New. Watch this. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take from me a contribution. There's something that's really important. Giving is for God. To God, giving back to him what he has given us. Take from the people a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive a gift. 2 Corinthians 9. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. See that? You decide in your heart how much you want to give. There's no starting number, no 10% start there. The New Testament says in your heart, between you and the Lord, between those in your life who you love and trust, you decide what you want to give. Start there. And do not be reluctant, and do not give reluctantly, or in response to pressure. It's wrong for a church to pressure people. Do not give in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Your heart should be full of joy in doing it. And your heart has to be motivated by the gospel. Has to come from the heart, has to be motivated by the gospel. Here comes another one. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And that is talking about rich in salvation. And so we look at the generosity of Jesus Christ. We look at what he has done for us, and that is what stirs us to give. And we do it from a heart that understands that we have to give with wisdom and we have to give responsibly. You have to give with wisdom and you have to do it responsibly, responsibly considering all of your other financial obligations. And so you do that with those things in mind. And here's the other side of this. The church, we are called to give responsibly, but pastors are called to steward responsibly. And that's because Hebrews 13, 17 says, we will have to give an account. And so, yes, the offering needs to come in. It needs to come from the heart that is motivated by the gospel. But when those who are in leadership 
see that number, whatever it is, we, the immediate action needs to be, how do we steward this well for the glory of God? Because pastors, elders, leaders, they're not owners. They're stewards. And it's an entrustment. And we will stand before God and explain how we manage the resources of his people. And so we steward it well because we will have to give an account. The Philippians did more than could be expected. Like a student loan that is paid off, Paul says, I received full payment. He says, I'm well supplied having received the gift that you gave me. So they took care of Paul. They sent this financial gift because where he is, he might die. There's nothing that food's not coming to him. So they send this gift and then Paul says, thank you for taking care of me. Now he tells them who will take care of them. Verse 19 says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says that God has a limitless supply of resources. That there's nothing that he is lacking and that he will supply all of your needs, Philippians, from those resources. Here again, though, we need to know what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that you have given money and so now there's a guarantee that God is going to give you lots of money. He's not saying that. Again, every time we're reading the Bible, applying the Bible, we need to keep it in context. Context drives everything. He's not saying if you give, if you sow a seed, God is going to bless you with lots of money. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you give and trust the Lord to supply, he will take care of you in all of the different circumstances of life. That's what he's saying. You are going to go through ups and downs. And because God has limitless resources, limitless riches, you can trust him to supply for whatever your needs are, physical and spiritual. And that is how we are to give. Trusting that God is going to take care of me. He's going to supply for my needs, physical and spiritual, in the ways that are wisest to him. And so we trust him and give, obey uh, those commands. And here's the thing. We can trust God to supply our needs in the future. Why? Because he's supplied for our greatest need in the past. John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Ephesians says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God looked at us and saw our need, and he sends his son and sends his spirit. He supplies for our greatest need. We're outside the family of God. And he sends Jesus Christ who dies in our place so that we could be welcomed in the family of God. See, we can be generous because God is generous. It's only because God gave that now we have the opportunity to give. And that has to drive all that we do. And he says when we do this, we bring glory to our Father in heaven. 
And we give glory because we tell the culture around us that God is real and that it's him working in us that gives us the ability to do these things. Paul has said a lot in this letter. And he closes with one last call for unity. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. They have this shared identity. He says, you are saints. We are saints. He says, all the, greet every saint. All the saints greet you. Now, this is a massive, massively important truth when you think about times of temptation. Because in times of temptation, do you know what you need to remember? You're a saint. That in Christ, you are totally changed. And that your flesh in that moment is tempting you to act in a way that is inconsistent with who you are. And that in those moments, what I am to do is to surrender to the Spirit and say, Spirit, you show me the way out of this. Because I am a saint in Christ. And I want to honor the Lord with my behavior. Remembering our our identity in moments of temptation are extremely important because it allows us to fight sin and not let sin rule over us. So he tells them that they're saints and then he tells them that they're in the family of God. He says, the brothers who are with me greet you. We are saints. We are in God's family. All because we are in Christ. Look at verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means I believe the gospel. It means that all of my hope and my trust is in Jesus Christ alone. And because of that, we've been changed. We've been brought into the family of God. And this is a gentle reminder to the ladies who are fighting. Remember, Pastor Andrew talked about that. There's disunity going on. And this is a, just a gentle reminder to these ladies. Hey, ladies, you're in the family. Work it out. Fight for unity. Don't fight each other. This is a good reminder to them, and it's an, a really important reminder to us. And here's why. Because rem, being reminded of who we are in Christ motivates our obedience based on our identity. So that we obey the commands of Scripture based on our identity in Christ. And so in Christ, we can live a life of contentment. We can live a life of generosity, not because we're trying to get God to love us, but because we're already loved by God. We are his saints. We are his children. And so all we're doing is pleasing the Lord in our behavior. It's also a reminder that we have to do this together that we're in a family. We are his children. And if we are going to side by side, spread the gospel, advance the mission of God, unity is not optional. It is essential. And we have to stay together on it. And we can do all of this, all of these things, contentment, generosity, trusting the Lord with our life. We can do it all because he is working in us for his good pleasure. He's at work in us. And so we trust. Stand with me as I pray.
Father, we, Lord, are in awe of, of you, your goodness to us, your work, Father God, in our life. And Lord, we trust you. We trust you to supply all of our needs, Lord God. And so trusting you to supply our needs helps us, Father, to be content. It helps us, Lord God, to give in the ways that you are leading us to do it. I pray, Lord, that our life would be a sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to you because Jesus, Lord God, is so much better than all this world offers. And we pray this because of him who gave his life so that we could be rescued from sin and know you. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit HopeTorontoNorth.com.